Welcome to iScan in Conversation, where we talk about cybersecurity, military defense, crisis communications, and much more with industry experts from around the globe. Stay tuned. We can say with high confidence that hundreds of millions, billions, in fact, of dollars will be stolen next year by cyber criminals who will not get caught. Cybercrime pays. We can also say with high confidence that cyber espionage, the theft of intellectual property, research and development, even transactional information, will result in the loss to companies, again, of billions of dollars. As nation states, particularly China, steal information from American and European companies and give it to Chinese companies. In short, we pay for the R&D, and they get it for free. Hard to compete with that going on, but that will go on next year as it's been going on. What about cyber war? The Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, said in this city last month that we are at a pre-9-11 moment. He said there are people with capabilities who are plotting to use them against us not with terrorism, but with cyber war. Knocking out banking, perhaps, knocking out electricity, perhaps, causing havoc and getting away with it because we cannot defend successfully today against that kind of attack. That was Richard A. Clark, National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection and Counterterrorism for the United States between 1998 and 2003, speaking on the next threat to national security and what to do about it at the Economist's World in 2013 Festival on December 8, 2012 in New York City. These comments were made about nine years ago, and since then we have seen a proliferation of massive cyber intrusions by various groups for various reasons, some identified and many not. As part of this dialogue, iScan Group welcomes you to this three-part series on Next Level Threat, the Colonial Pipeline Intrusion and the Lessons Learned from OSINT. Joining me today for part one of this series is James Chow, Yusta Yu and Richard Coyne, iScan Group's Senior Advisors and iScan Group Managing Director, Andrew Vasco. This session will be led by James. Thanks, Victoria. My pleasure for being able to host this podcast. And there's a lot to discuss here today, uh, but I really first would like to ask Andrew Vasco to start us off with the genesis of the topic. Thanks, James. I mean, I think um, the, the colonial pipeline intrusion obviously is, is, is a major issue. And I think, you know, for us at iScan, I think it started, you know, sometime back last year when we commissioned a paper, white paper, which was called OSINT Threat to National Security. And, and in that paper, uh, which was um, written by Richard, who's on, on the call today, we appreciate Richard's time, uh, we identified a number of, of, of threats. But uh, case study one was, uh, and I was just taken by it, was OSINT walkthrough of the identifications of the weak links in a time of COVID uh, with the ability, uh, you know, with the, with the idea that remote access uh, could have been involved here. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. And that, that has driven us. And I think the other thing is just, you know, I remember talking to Euster, um, uh, who we were a couple days after this happened, and we were just 
you know, talking about um, the the size of this and the that that had been penetrated, and in that it was, uh, you know, it had threatened the the, the civilian power grid, uh, and so it, it's almost like it had crossed that line that people had, as as we heard earlier from Richard Clark, prophesied that these things would happen. So I think when it happened, uh, we we decided together as a group to to take this up, and and just for everyone who's listening, we're we're going to take this up in three sections. Uh, part one today is the threat, uh, where we will be talking about the, the intricacies of, of, of what we see as the threat and what, of how this really happened, uh, depending on the information that we have. And the second one is case study. So there's a, there's a quite a few case studies. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about some of the things that really make sense and, and highlight some of those in light of, of what's happened here. And then the third one is just the implications and the policies. As we said, this is not going to stop. Um, and so I think with that, I think we can outline not only what um, individuals, organizations, governments need to really look at. And so I think that was the genesis of it, James. Um, I'm glad to have uh, Richard here uh, and, and Euster uh, for, for a very useful discussion on a really significant incident uh, that occurred er earlier this year. Thanks, Andrew, and, and welcome to Euster and to Richard. Um, and Andrew, appreciate the introduction uh, on Colonial and, the, and today's topic of, of the threat. So despite the fact that Colonial is by no means a household name, it's significant to millions of Americans who depend on gasoline in their daily lives. In fact, it would absolutely be considered critical infrastructure to the United States, which I think begs uh, the question, why colonial and, and what's the threat? So perhaps I could ask you, Stir, just to start us off to give us the basics of this intrusion and how do cyber attackers choose targets and, and why did they choose colonial? All right. Thank you, James and, and everybody. Uh, I'm very happy to be here to share some of my thoughts on the colonial well, pipeline incident. The question is why colonial? I, I think the IT security has improved significantly over the past few uh, decades, I think, from better firewall, uh, CM system, uh, intrusion detection. But on the other side, uh, the more conventional, traditional industries, they tend not to be as threat uh, aware, uh, threat conscious about uh, cyber attacks. As a result, uh, we can see after probably 2016, 17, WannaCry, there's a lot of um, different uh, ransomware attacks uh, in sectors that we are not uh, normally believed to be targets of hackers. Earlier, we would think that uh, the targets would be information companies, would be um, Google, Amazon, or, or Uber, that kind of things. But probably because they, uh, Amazon spend uh, and Google spend a lot of money in uh, securing their systems, I think the hackers now see that the more traditional sectors, industry sectors, are easier to attack. And a lot of them have a lot of money to spend. And their impact can be more directly affecting 
the population, for example, this pipeline issue uh, is affecting people's um, daily lives, how they get get gas to, to drive their cars. It, while as the another sectors, for example, the banks and, and Google, you may be you, you may not be able to uh, log on to your Facebook account for a day or so, but people usually just can deal with that. Uh, this is different. This is like uh, I'm running out of gasoline. And also uh, when we talk about the uh, other incidents like Ukraine, a quarter million people out of power on, on Christmas Eve, these kind of attacks will exert more pressure on the companies or authorities and will force them to want to make a quick payment. I think that might be one of the reasons, that, that might be some of the reasons that they would choose uh, these uh, non-IT sectors. Very interesting, uh, Euster. Certainly makes a lot of sense in the context of hard versus soft targets, as you point out. And, and there would seem perhaps to be a limitless supply of these softer targets. So I'd like uh, maybe Richard uh, perhaps to, to comment on this a little bit. So when I hear, Richard, about a cyber attack at the company level, like a Colonial or, or others that we've heard of, uh, versus, let's say, an email phishing scam that we've all encountered at some point, the level of sophistication seems multiple magnitudes higher than what we experience. But perhaps you could tell us more about this, about the attack vectors you see in these recent cyber attacks on companies and what makes them so clever and pernicious? Yeah, um, sure, James. Um, I would actually say that, um, and we can, I'm sure we can pick apart some details of, of the attack later. I don't think there's anything remarkable or remotely unique about this attack. And I don't see it as being remarkably different to, to be honest, the vast majority um, of attacks um, using obtainable information, exploitable information, and or deceiving some staff, and almost certainly a combination of the two. I think it's worth pointing out as well in terms of what made them a target. For all the attack isn't unique, this kind of company occupies a fairly uncommon space in that it's almost certainly in the crosshairs of all the types of attackers. Uh, I'll explain what I mean there. I, I tend to categorize attackers into three um, brackets, if you like. One is state actor. Is a national infrastructure target likely to be the target of a state actor? Absolutely. You know, a significant state actor wanting to, to cripple somebody's ability to function industrially or economically, they would want to have that kind of capability. The next would be um, cyber criminals or just criminals. Essentially what we've seen here, people wanting to make some money out of this and absolutely everybody is in their target set, anybody they can get to. And the third would be less common would be hacktivists. So somebody with a political axe to grind. Um, and if we think about the, uh, who would be an adversary of an oil and gas company? A lot of people, uh, a lot of environmentalists, and I think it's fair to say uh, a lot of um, activists occupy a similar political space to real-world eco-activists, for example, for right or for wrong. Any of those would make Colonial a really absolutely valid target. By far and away, the most common, of course, is the the ransomware attacker. It's the quickest, easiest way uh, to make money. Um, these people are working at scale. And generally, and I'm going back to one of your earlier points about um, what makes this a, uh, an easy option, 
it's all about available information. It's all about low-hanging fruit and, generally speaking, just opportunist attacks. If somebody can be found in any given organization with some exposed credentials for one member of staff, that's the first step on the way in to hitting somebody with a one-size-fits-all piece of ransomware. It starts off very simply. Richard, uh, could you could you expand on that a little more um, in terms of the identification of the personas which are, are necessary? It sounds almost unbelievable in terms of uh, perhaps the simplicity, but tell us more about the sophistication inherent in a simple attack. Well, sure. I mean, the reason that there are so many cyber attacks, there are too many to fit into our news media, is that it is, broadly speaking, a fairly easy pursuit. And it's the easiest targets that are exploited. Again, we focus on the cyber criminal aspect. They want the quickest run that they can have against an easy target have several concurrent targets, and then move on to the next one. That's the business model. And it makes them an enormous amount of money. Now, I'm not saying that this wasn't a specified attack that was long in the making, but I dare say it probably wasn't. Um, most attacks begin with information gathering from open source, by which I mean looking around the internet using search engines. Can I identify members of staff that I could deceive and exploit? Simpler still. Um, can I find their passwords without having to deceive them from the dark web, from breach data sources, stuff that's easy to find and buy? Or is there simply an open doorway that nobody's protected? You know, there's a password wall that isn't properly configured, or there's directly accessible data, perhaps even directly accessible control panels. It could be any of these things. And generally speaking, the simplest possibility is actually the way in. So you're not talking about exploiting zero day or the so-called zero day uh, vulnerabilities that we read about that may be inherent in uh, Windows systems or other systems. You're talking about something something out in the open, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, if you have one of those uh, tickets up your sleeve, so to speak, then you're probably going to save it for the biggest, baddest target that you can get your your hands on, the most valuable, and perhaps perhaps one was used in this case. It just seems very, very unlikely, uh, given the ease with which we can generally find information on a company and its staff. This kind of information is quite often evidence of the reuse of a password by one member of staff. As simple as that. Then Incredible. find a way to, to log into their systems. Again, I'm not saying that is what happened here. There's certainly evidence it was the case. It's been asserted by some um, in news regarding this article. But again, I'm talking university here and much broader than just colonial. The reason there are so many attacks is that it is easy and it's all about the information. So about what Euster was saying in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the hard targets of, let's say, banks versus softer targets. Among these softer targets, how, how do these cyber attackers decide who to attack? Is it about the money? Is it about the ease combination? According to the, the updates, news updates here, uh, actually it was really easy. Some the hackers got hold of the name and password of a VPN account of Colonial Pipeline. And that password has been leaked on the dark web. So that was that easy. And all, all they have to do is just use a VPN, sign into the network, and insert the ransomware. That's all. So would you chalk that up, Euster, to, to basic carelessness uh, that there was 
uh, a best practice or procedure in place, or or perhaps there wasn't. What do you what do you see in this space in terms of things like that which happen? Um, a VPN that wasn't being used, but the company didn't take away the privilege. What's the nature of that mistake? Uh, and then, really, a follow up for both of you is is how do we defend against those types of mistakes? My experience is that if you want to go into a uh, well-defended uh, network, uh, the easiest way is always go through the human aspect, and sometimes through carelessness, and sometimes is people fail to uh, comply with the protocols and guidance that the company would issue. Sometimes the top-level leadership just have no idea what the compliance policy should be, and they they don't enforce it very strictly, um, probably tax it to some IT uh, personnel to enforce it. And as a result, a lot of times the IT person may be lower in the echelon and then not getting uh, very well paid, not very well paid, and just lack of morale. And, and he has so many things to take care of. Sometimes it's overlooked part of it. For example, this one, this account. He, he failed to te- inform the uh, senior leadership, maybe we need to use uh, multi-factor identification, authentication. So even if the password is leaked on the dark web, the hacker won't be able to sign in unless the hacker get hold of a, a employee ID with the uh, IC chip on it as well. So that, that's the things that is that what I'm talking about is you have to have a well thought out compliance policy and you have to enforce it to avoid the uh, weaknesses like the, the those weaknesses that people like Richard would uh, would be looking for. In discussing a lot of this, uh, Euster and, and Richard, it almost seems helpless uh, to try to defend against this because of the variation in, in human nature, uh, the vulnerabilities of just people uh, in terms of divulging information or or information that's out there, um, but there must be some sort of defense against this. Uh, Richard, ha- how would you describe a good defense against this type of attack? Well, again, I'm going to focus on the information aspect and the people aspect. I'm not going to sit here and talk about you know the ones and zeros of, of technical defense. Um, and the reason is most attacks start that way. And sometimes that's, well, most of the time, that's all that's required. It's visible information. Now, that can be as simple as not broadly advertising that you work for a certain organization. Um, now, I'm generally well, quite often not that popular when I say, hey, are you on LinkedIn? Get off LinkedIn. You're just advertising where you work and making yourself a target. Some people think that it's expected to be on there, and maybe that is the case. But as a um, playing the role of an attacker, as I do in my day job, that's where I go first to find out who's in the organization that I'm trying to get into. From there, with a name in place, I'm going to infer or discover their email address. And from that, I'm going to look for leaked passwords that go against their name. Now, the first step is, if I can't see that you're a member of staff, I've got very little to go on. And to be honest, if there are very few people in an organization, me, if I'm pretending you know, to be a, a ransomware attacker, then in reality, I'd be moving on to the next target. In terms of um, you know, if you deem that, oh, okay, I must be on LinkedIn, 
um, it's expected, then how much do you need to say about who you work for, um, who you directly work with, what your skill sets are, and in technical people's cases, you know, which types of database you might work with. All of that is priceless intelligence for the would-be attacker. The other thing is not signing up for external accounts using your workplace email address. So again, a primary way alongside LinkedIn in which I'm going to identify members of staff in an organization is looking for people with the at colonialpipeline.com or whatever they're called domain. Each of those persons is going to be a potential way in. Now, when I say non-workplace account, um, if we think of one of the countless high profile breaches out there, like the LinkedIn breach, the Dropbox breach, to name two very common ones that everybody is in. If I see you in there and there's a password, I'm going to look for other instances of that password being used by you. You've identified yourself as a member of staff of an organization outside of your company perimeter, so to speak. If you didn't sign up for a Dropbox account in your company's name, you've massively reduced uh, the ability for an attacker to find somebody inside the wire to, uh, to, to go and try and exploit and log in as. So th these are really simple steps, but they are absolutely the means by which ransomware attackers decide to move on and just hit the next target. Uh, if I may, there's also these days people start uh, enforcing the zero tolerance policy and compartmentalize their, their network. That that being sort of like uh, when I was on the Navy ship, uh, each compartment can be sealed watertight. So when one compartment is flooded, we can seal it off. It doesn't go into the other uh, compartments to cause the ship to sink. Uh, that might be some of the things to do because in this case, from what I read in open source, uh, the hacker got into the colonial pipeline and they first only got into the, the building section uh, of this network. The architecture, the, the network's design that you can contain it into only that section, you probably won't be uh, too worried about that uh, particular incident. And also um, the first uh, example uh, Richard just gave about uh, the the company advertising what they work what their clients are, it reminded me of the recent cyber attack, the Solar Winds Orion. Uh, a lot of people criticize Solar Winds. They they have on their webpage the clients include uh, the Pentagon, Microsoft, and Homeland Security, and and instantly they become the target of a hacker. Andrew, go. Yeah, no, I was going to say that also compounding that um, just looking, you know, talking, uh, referring back to the white paper is that the, as Richard mentioned, if, you, if you're looking at the weak links, uh, what's happened over COVID uh, and, and people not being able to go to uh, offices or, or, or the headquarters and thus making remote access available, I think is probably also possibly going to, we're going to see that uh, and that's something that needs to be looked at because you're looking, as Richard said, the individual. But, uh, you know, uh, because of, of what's happening, COVID, I think it, it, it needs to be reviewed what things have been done uh, in the name of safety, uh, health safety. But once again, has, has probably left a number of organizations very, very vulnerable. Um, so I think that that's another interesting uh, view as we as we move ahead in the threat scenario. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. I mean, in, even in a normal year, by which I mean not under a global pandemic, spear phishing uh, is 
can be, in most cases, relatively straightforward, especially going back to my previous comments. If something like LinkedIn tells me where you work, you can find a victim. You can find somebody whose identity to adopt and impersonate, establish that they don't work in the same physical space and start sending messages. The difference being if you target somebody who sits next to um, um, the person you're pretending to be, your cover's going to be blown pretty quick. With COVID, of course, vastly more people are working separately, separate buildings, to be honest, working from their homes in, in very, very, very uh, many cases. Um, and let's face it, I think beyond COVID, I think we now see how many people can effectively work from home. It's going to be worse than it used to be when we get back to normal, so to speak. There are going to be fewer people sitting together and fishing is just going to be easier than it used to be. Fascinating. So what are the ramifications of these attacks? Um, you know, the, the most obvious, of course, is the loss of, of money. Um, but what are the other ones? You know, reputation, perhaps? Um, Richard, maybe you could start us off there on, in terms of, of, of what happens post-attack. Absolutely. So reputation is extremely difficult to put a dollar value on. Um, and it can come in, or should I say reputational damage can come in many, many flavors. So just thinking of an example from my own um, security test work, so simulated attacks, I was able to get into a substantial company and discover from inboxes, email inboxes inside the company, various passwords for their external accounts. So here I'm talking about things like Twitter, um, Amazon, eBay, um, and other more social forms of media like, like Facebook, etc. Now, what happens if you get onto a well-known company's Twitter account and post something bad? The world sees that. It's the most global of all platforms. Now, the thing to think about is, is somebody's Twitter account the same as their own corporate security? Well, no, of course it's not. It's not inside the company's perimeter, but at the same time, in everybody's mind, that company's security wasn't good enough. Now they've been embarrassed. Um, this is kind of shameful for them. And if you take it from the point of view, and here we talk about the dollars, from the point of view of the customer who was going to go to that bank that week and open an account, or further up the ladder, that investor who was going to go and put much more money into that company that week, or that month, or maybe even that year, that well-known publicized attack is going to be in their minds, consciously or subconsciously. It's going to affect them hugely and for quite a lot of time. So yeah, reputation can have um, many sides to it and the effects financially can be quite long lived. Yeah, and I'd say that, uh, I know we're gonna take this up in another podcast, but I mean, we saw that with Sony uh, uh, and, and, and they're still reeling from it and, and what it was with the, their own proprietary methodology that was, was collected, uh, whether it be, um, you know, so I know it was put on the internet um, of exactly how they price. I mean, there was some really some sensitive stuff that was put up there. So. I mean, it, it has implication on the, on the brand, which has implication on the value of that company. Um, and it, it is it is quite frightening. And obviously it, it speaks of, as Richard said, the leadership of and what they're doing to mitigate, you know, the, the, the threat. Great discussion. You know, and thanks again to Richard and Euster uh, for that. There are a lot of key takeaways from this, I think. Um, a couple from my point of view would be, you know, first, it, it was striking to me that 
the number of targets available to cyber attackers with ransom goals in mind could be in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of potential soft targets, essentially an, uh, an unlimited supply of, of victims. And, and second, you know, defenses seem relatively simple as I think Richard and Euster and have, have pointed out, yet they appear also to be very hard to implement. I think the big companies, uh, when, when they think of uh, cybersecurity, I mean, aside from those um, uh, technology companies, most likely the CEOs would not know how to deal with it when, when they, they, they look at the, the reports and look at the briefings from their IT guys and security guys. It, it, it would be difficult for them to understand what they were talking about. Therefore, there's usually a gap that they would just find someone has certain certificates and and let them do it and just write checks to buy equipment. And that's what engineers do. But the cyber operation, if we look at it from a distance, it, it looks like a traditional uh, intelligence operation just from in different just in different domain and therefore a sound cybersecurity strategy and and plan she incorporated a lot of old school intelligence and counterintelligence uh, techniques uh, just applied to the IT information technologies a lot to think about thanks Euster uh, Richard yeah, I mean, I would say, as a sort of closing thoughts, if a highly skilled and well-resourced attacker really wants to get to you, then let's face it, you may well be in trouble. However, most attacks are criminal in nature. Um, most criminal cyber attacks are opportunist in nature. If you lower your visibility in, in terms of um, who are the staff, who does what, if you exert good password discipline, and if you exert awareness within a, a workforce of what an attack really looks like, bearing in mind, in my own experience as well as a security tester, I'm using the phone a lot of the time, then you are going to make yourself a significantly harder target and you're going to find that most attackers are going to move on. So it's reasonably simple and you could absolutely improve your security to a very high degree without having to spend countless millions of dollars on, on a technical solution. Great. Thanks, Euster and Richard. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, and and you know, obviously, uh, you know, I'll take it from another angle, and we we were touching a little bit about it. We we you know we do this in iScan when we're briefing people is just to prepare. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, reputational management, and we've uh, we're talking to our clients, and 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 Richard uh, and Euster uh, are part of the 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 tool set uh, that we we offer clients, and I'm always amazed that they they don't make the connection between those things of vulnerability assessments uh, and reputational management. And I think that just probably speaks to the point that we've made here uh, that people need to really get their heads around uh, the seriousness of it before it happens, not after, where it costs you money, it costs you reputation. Um, so I think I think that's the key is just prepare yourself. And, uh, and uh, it's been a really useful conversation. Great, thanks, Euster, Andrew and Richard. A great conversation here on part one, Colonial Pipeline. Look forward to continuing this discussion in the series. Thank you for listening to iScan in Conversation. 
If you want to know more about today's topic, check out iScanGroup.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and hit the subscribe button.